0: Hi, Alison. Hi, Sarah. So this is Spotlight on France, the lockdown version. Uh, we're both recording from home. Uh, best, we're about like eight kilometres away from each other, not in the studio. Yeah,
1: I think it must be about that. We're in week one of this fortnight of not going out of the house without a certificate. Even we as journalists need them. And there are about 100,000 police officers up and down the country being very zealous about checking people to make sure they are carrying that attestation. The latest polls do show, however, that the vast majority of the French approve the lockdown. So that's something.
0: But so we're still allowed a bit outside. We're allowed to go out to do shopping, go to the doctors. And then there's a bit of exercise, uh, which is a bit vague. I've been out for a walk. It's not clear exactly how far, how long. And actually, I was just been reading a Twitter thread from the sports minister who said, 30 minutes of exercise for adults, an hour for kids, but don't run for more than two kilometers. And of course, there's lots of back and forth. and so what does that actually mean? And it's, it's, you know, it's very confusing. It
1: is. We're contenting ourselves for the moment. We've got a, a backyard in our building. So that's kind of handy. We can go down and do some skipping and some stretching and Tai Chi and that kind of thing. But in a way, I consider myself quite lucky. I've just had a quick trip to the pharmacy to buy some paracetamol like loads of people. Of course, there aren't any face masks. There's no um, sanitizer gel, etc. Um, but there was quite tight security in a way. The door was open at the pharmacy, but then there was ticker tape to stop you actually going inside. And the pharmacist was there with the full mask with gloves and all dressed, you know, from head to toe in white. It's reassuring
0: on the one hand. At the same time, it's a
1: little bit anxiety inducing.
0: I guess that's what these whole measures are kind of intended to be of like reassuring that, yes, things are under control, but, you know, we do need to be careful about this. This is serious. And we'll see how long it'll last. Um, they said it was two weeks, it'll probably be prolonged. And this, of course, is coming after a rise and an exponential rise these days in death. Deaths and cases of the virus. It really got imposed, the lockdown itself on Sunday. Of course, it was like the first full day of spring, at least here in Paris. The sun was shining and lots of people went outside, which kind of freaked out the government.
1: It was incredible. I walked through one of these parks in my neighborhood just to get a little bit of fresh air. And it was really quite shocking to see just how many people were out picnicking on the grass, sitting really close to one another, playing, uh, really not respecting this one meter distance at
0: all. Right, right. And that was something that the president, Emmanuel Macron, chastised us on in his speech on Monday. Although, to be fair, I mean, as I was saying earlier about the sports stuff, the instructions are a little bit vague. And until then, at least, especially there hadn't been any real instructions about how to behave. We we're told not to gather too much, stay a meter apart. But what does that mean? You know, don't go walking outside. Um, at that point, the only thing that had been done was was bars and restaurants had been closed. Yeah. And it it does feel a bit like
1: the communication hasn't been that clear. It feels sometimes like the government is pulling in two rather different directions. In the beginning, they seemed to be very keen to preserve the economy and to protect businesses. And now, of course, it's preserving public health. But those two things aren't necessarily compatible.
0: Absolutely. And I think this is something that probably governments and, and countries worldwide, I mean, China the first, are dealing with. Um, of course, now Macron on Monday says we're at
2: war. Nous sommes en guerre. En guerre sanitaire, certes, nous ne luttons ni contre une armée, ni contre une autre nation, mais l'ennemi est là.
0: He gave a very solemn address to the nation, really trying to get us to take this seriously, um, basically saying, bunker down with your family, and then the government will take care of the rest. And they, the government has proposed quite sweeping measures to help businesses, uh, 45 billion euro package for small businesses, some some loan help for, for banks, um, you know, new measures to Um, avoid layoffs and that kind of thing so you know they are stepping in absolutely but the all the talk of war has nonetheless got people panicking a bit especially about food shortages
1: Uh, I visited a couple of supermarkets uh, earlier in the week and they were completely empty of, for example, meat, bread, milk and dry foods
0: like pasta. And of course, there's always the toilet paper shortages, the famous toilet paper.
1: Well, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> ongoing. And that's another issue. No one quite understands why people insist on buying huge amounts of toilet paper. Um, But all this stockpiling, in a way, it really doesn't make sense because the food shops themselves are not closed. That's one thing, along with uh, bakeries and pharmacies, that isn't affected by the shutdown.
0: Yeah, and they're being supplied as well. Um, This lockdown announcement, which came into effect on on Tuesday midday, also pushed a lot of Parisians and residents of bigger cities to leave town. Um, You know, it is kind of understandable. I can see we're all in these small Parisian apartments and the prospect of being confined is Uh a little terrifying especially Tell with our kids. It. Yeah, So a lot of people headed out to their second homes or to, to be with their families in the countryside.
1: Yeah and um, I have to say some people have been saying that's rather irresponsible. They could actually be just further spreading the virus by traveling around like that um, and there is a little bit of a backlash now from some people outside of Paris in the countryside that feel that you know the Parisians in particular are just sort of using the countryside. So it's creating a little bit of frustration.
0: So but ultimately, I mean, all this, of course, is to try to alleviate cases in hospitals, because basically, they're starting to get overwhelmed already, especially in the east of France, there is a crisis, to some extent, people are talking about, you know, dealing with triage, like in a war situation, you know, you just have to decide who you're going to treat and and who unfortunately, you're going to let die.
1: Yeah, and one of the worst cases is in uh, Moulouse, in the east of France, where the military is now airlifting sick people out of the hospital to other less inundated hospitals, particularly in the south of France. Doctors are warning that, alas, the worst is still to come.
0: So now, you know, obviously a lot, this is a health crisis, but it's also having a political fallout and notably here in France with our local elections.
1: Yeah, because political parties were keen to go ahead with the first round that was last Sunday, but ended up canceling the second round that was due to be held this Sunday.
0: And it kind of raises some some legal questions about the validity of the results of that first round. Interestingly, about 30,000 of the 35,000 mayors and their lists were elected as of the first round, so they don't need a second round.
1: Yeah, which is quite a high score. It suggests that people were really sticking with the incumbent mayors, sticking with what they knew in this time of, of great stress and crisis. Now, the interior minister said no one would understand that the results of an election could in any way be put into question, especially given the length to which all the officials uh, went to make sure that that first round was held with all the necessary sanitary measures put into place in polling stations and so on.
0: So so the government is passing a new law to extend the mandates of the 5000 or so mayors who are still waiting for a second round. Um, and the idea is to wait to consult a scientific committee in mid May to see if elections can happen probably in June.
1: The risk of all that, of course, is that it will further undermine confidence in politics and politicians in an already rather sceptical country. The abstention level for these local elections was record high. Close to 55% of voters didn't turn out.
0: away from Coronavirus. Um, since we are all on lockdown, we may as well learn something new.
1: Yeah, one of the few good things about all of this is that people are it would seem reading a lot more. So Sarah, share your discovery with us.
0: Alright, so history today, 74 years ago, March 19 1946, France turned four of its former colonies into departments. Um, the Caribbean islands of Martinique and Guadeloupe, Guyana in the South America and then Reunion Island in the Indian Ocean. These territories are kind of called the confetti of the French Empire, these small territories left over from the first French colonial empire, that exploration and colonization that took place before the revolution, um, taken up by Louis Thirteenth and his minister Cardinal Richelieu. Private trading companies were set up in these far flung areas to notably provide sugar and tobacco and other supplies to France.
1: And all of this, of course, involved slavery.
0: Absolutely. In the 17th century, France sent thousands of people from West Africa as slaves on sugar plantations in Guadeloupe and Martinique. Slavery was abolished in France and its colonies in 1848 which gave the populations in those places French citizenship, actually, and the right to vote. Now, fast forward about 100 years after the Second World War, there's the liberation of France from the Nazi regime, and this sort of rising consciousness of liberation. In Guadeloupe and Martinique, it was the white landowning class, those descendants of slave owners who started pushing for independence. They were eyeing relationships with the United States, you know, their neighbors to the north. The main opponent to independence was Aimé Césaire, who's a Martinican poet and lawmaker.
1: and he developed and pushed the idea of negritude uh, back in the 1930s. That's the idea of raising black consciousness in people of African descent, but right around the world.
0: Yeah. And so he argued that the population of these territories were better off actually as part of France with the social benefits and protections that, that came with it. And he was instrumental as a lawmaker in getting the departmentalization law passed. It made these four territories part of France proper, no longer administered, by the colonial empire, which still existed. Um, A few months later, in September 1946, the other French colonies in Africa, Asia and the Pacific became collectivities or overseas territories, also kind of getting rid of this colonial empire. The law was really the first step of French decolonization. It did last through 1962 with the liberation of Algeria. Today France counts five overseas departments in the Caribbean and the Indian Ocean, and six overseas territories in the Caribbean, the Pacific, and the North Atlantic off the coast of Canada with Saint-Pierre and Miquelon.
1: Well, I now understand what confetti of the empire really is. Sarah, as France settles into this period of confinement, it's giving us a lot of time to think, right? And the president himself has called on people to focus on what is essential. I guess crises kind of do that. They do, exactly. And French journalist Stéphanie Roussel has had her own reckoning with what is essential. After the Charlie Hebdo terror attacks back in November 2015, and then we had these toxic presidential elections where the far right came close to power, she set off on a road trip, meeting people from all over the country, Um, to ask them about love, to try and restore her faith that there is still love out there. It resulted in a book of very telling photos called Amour. And there are a number of different portraits of old and young couples, of people who've lost their loved ones, um, of gay love, of people who are actually in love with themselves, of people who've managed to come through uh, situations of domestic abuse and go on to have more if you like, uh, loving relationships. I talked with her a little while ago, before the coronavirus, in fact, but what she has to say, to be honest, it's rather timeless and indeed universal.
2: It was actually right after the French presidential elections because I was, uh, you know, it's like I kept hitting a wall. It was... Uh, Sadness, despair, sadness, despair, sadness, despair. And I had embedded with the far right right after the Bataclan attacks. And then knowing that they might, like, Marine Le Pen could be the president, I just said, you know, I can't do this. Like, I, I needed a way out. So I said, you know what? Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel love. I didn't see love. And so I just decided to take my car and ask people one question. What is love? I just said, Ali, let's go. Let's, Let's go. This. So you, you you spoke to 92 people, 92 portraits uh, for this book. Yeah. You know, it was like for each moment of joy, there was a, a sad moment. And for each moment of despair, there was a moment of healing. You know, someone could say, so what's the definition of love? I think there are 92 people in the book, I could say there are 92 different uh, versions of love.
1: I have this feeling that the French are not always that comfortable talking about really personal stuff. They don't always like you know open up that quickly what was your point of view when you set off
2: well it went so naturally because in a way I was also this was a very personal quest and I think that all the people I met uh, understood that I needed answers I know the French can be extremely reserved and they are but I'm reserved too you know so I think uh, that if people opened up it's because we really Got to know each other, you know. It's just like I think I was in a, in a part of my life where I was feeling extremely sad, and I needed these answers, like what is love, what is the meaning of life, and that's why I always say about all the people I met, it's like the movement of the resistance of love, you know. So Mm -hmm. I think they understood, the meaning of uh, what I was looking for.
1: What was your opening gambit then? You literally So basically
2: what? I would tell them I was like they would say so what are you doing here, you know? And I was saying, well, you know, I'm I'm depressed. I I don't see love. I haven't seen it for years, and I need to know what is love? What is the meaning of life? What, what's our purpose? And they I think they people have the same questions. They don't know. And so I think uh, that's why they said, well, you know what, let's talk about it because I need to know, too. So create... actually that you, you were responding to a
1: need that they had as well.
2: Yes. So it's just like, you know, I think that people uh, and me, you know, we always are looking for a sign of existence that we exist. It's like when we met, we would, you know, share meals together. We would cook together. We would go on walks together. And so they knew I wasn't I wasn't there just, you know, I wasn't passing by. Like, I wasn't scraping Mm. the surface. And they weren't either. We were together, connecting.
1: Yeah, so you gave as much as you took. Yeah,
2: it was very about sharing.
1: There was one guy, Nicolas Bernouille, a 41-year-old, a baker and a farmer in Calvados, and he told you, this was his opening line, at least the one that you put in the book, I have the
2: impression we're not educated to have feelings. Is that a bit of a French thing? I I think that uh, sometimes... I don't want to do cliches about the French. And I think in this particular situation with Nicolas, I think it's um, about the, the education that he has, about not being able to show emotion. And I don't think it's necessarily French. I think it happens in a lot of families where the parents tell their kids to be quiet and it kills people's light. And it's actually through his love with his wife, that he was able to, and connection with nature, that he was able to feel a sense of happiness.
1: So you went all over France, to yeah. towns, to villages, but also to French overseas territories, to Martinique, to Guadeloupe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To what extent was this a way for you to almost discover France?
2: Yeah, that was amazing. Just to be able to go to Martinique and, uh, and Guadeloupe and Saint Martin, I was able to really see and meet the French. Like there's this idea that the French, if we go into the cliché, are romantic. It's ideal. Oh, c'est l'amour, you know. And uh, no, it's difficult. People are having a very hard time to make ends meet to pay, uh, you know, for the in for their mortgages salaries. and anywhere. I, I slept in the in the social housings, uh, in farms, and in little. Towns uh, that you've never heard of, you know. I slept at uh, Pascal's house. You know, who would wake up at three a.m. to to go uh, prepare some uh, sauce for your frozen food, you know? And and they work. Uh, it's these factories where it's nonstop, you know. So they work from three to eight, and then someone takes it back because they have to work on all these machines. So what I'm saying is that there's this idea that there's this French love that's super romantic, ideal, mm. forever, but it's just like. It's they not ha- true. It's not true. People are exactly like anyone, like saying that, you know, they have doubts about their ability to love, to be loved. And I think that you actually, it's what I saw is that there's this big, deep, needing connection. And I think that you could actually see that uh, with the movement of the yellow vests, people would meet up again. It's as if, and they were neighbors and they had never seen each other. And there's this woman I met called Laurence in the, um, the Pyrenees Mountains in the south of France. And she told me, you know, I was uh, leaving and I opened uh, my window and she looked at me and she said, Stefania, vive la résistance, you know. Mm. And it's just like, I think the French have this deep uh, feeling of uh, needing and are, and actually are part of a big movement of this uh, résistance. Wanting I would, to reconnect with yeah, one another. Ex- exactly, exactly. Yeah. Because uh, people are suffering a lot in France. Mm. And I'm not saying that uh, they're not happy, they're just having a hard time, you know, and I think that the Yellow Vest Movement was a wonderful way for them to say, yes, you you actually exist, you know, and people forget that. So I think uh, this is, I, it's sort of an, yeah. an ode to the French and how... Uh, I mean, this is this. What I did is about love, and I think that uh, these people are really trying to fight this darkness that is coming upon them. It became the yellow vest for some, and for some they'll be, you know, talking to their neighbor.
1: Did you find any regional differences in the way that these 92 people talked about love or opened up? Was there, you know, sort of map of France through through the the theme of love?
2: We <laughs> have a cliché of the people that in the north are cold and they're. Actually, not at all. They're funny. They're open. And the Shti. Uh, well, no, the Shti are the. They're so cool. I mean, I went dancing with them, and uh, there, I met this woman called Marlene, and uh, she brought me to the widow's ball, and it was so much fun. And it's just like, yeah. I, and in the south, people are actually super talkative too. But it's interesting. I, I never felt when I was going from region to the next that there was a, a difference between the French everyone has the same struggles but was there any difference between urban and rural i think in the rural it they were having a much harder time to meet people to to meet their partners in uh, cities it's uh, there's uh, there are bars everywhere uh, and but a lot of people actually met their partners through uh, websites And uh, i mean maybe 75% of the people even in the cities met their people through websites or apps which was amazing I think in the r- rural areas, it was more a, a website called Badu, right. and uh, thanks to Badu, they they were able to fall in love. Love is always there for you, and you can always be on your own. It doesn't matter either, you know.
1: Exactly, because mm. you also uh, portray people mm. who are not in relationships. No. I wonder if maybe we can finish on the point which I think was actually the starting point for the whole thing. You went up to Cali to try and meet migrants.
2: And in fact, uh, there were very few, but you did end up chatting to one. So yeah, after the elections, I just took my car and I was like, where do I go? And um, I thought of my grandmother, my grandmother Maria. She was Hungarian. And, and, you know, at the end of the Second World War, uh, the Russians were killing everyone on their way. So she had to leave, and she ended up in a garage in a village near Nuremberg. And her grandmother had died of hunger. It was tragic, and she was sent out to get some food, and she met my uh, my grandfather at the American base. And they fell in love, and my mother was actually born uh, two years later or one year later. And so that's why I decided to go to Calais, because uh, a lot of people there are... Uh, you know, living in the woods, hoping to reach uh, the UK. And so I thought, you know, I really would like to know what their feeling about love is. And uh, I, that's why I actually, when I met uh, Salam Salah from Pakistan and I asked him, you know, I was telling him about my grandmother and about uh, my, uh, my quest. And he said, you know, Stefania, love is in the flowers. Love is my mother. Love is my wife and in the worst conditions possible. This man was seeing light in darkness. He was saying, you know, there is light, even if this is a hard life, but uh, there is hope.
1: And so that's it for this week's edition of Spotlight on France. Um, We probably
0: won't have a show next week, but we do hope to be back in two weeks' time. Fingers crossed. In the meantime, you can find all of our archives. We have nearly 40 shows now on our website, rfienglish.com. Subscribe to the show in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to get the latest episode when it does come out. And you can write to us at
1: spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Bye-bye. Bye.